0: Sometimes there's men And I'm talking about the story men here And I know what you're thinking Those are some tall fellers I don't know if that's three stories separately Or three combined Well, we're missing the point Sometimes there's some men And you want to know what these hombres are about? Well I won't say they're heroes They're just the men who are right for their time and place These men, uh Well, I've probably introduced them enough, so just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way. What is up, everybody, and welcome to the Storyman Podcast. I am not Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros, And I am Matt Michelados, and we are the Storyman.
1: Uh, all of our stuff's over at NorvalRogers.com, and uh, today's episode, this is episode 179. Uh, after this, we only have 20 episodes to the big 200, which is hard to believe. Wow.
0: What are we going to do? Yeah. Are we going to do something special for 200?
1: I mean, it's it's not are we, it's what are we going what
0: to do. What are we? Any ideas out there from the story fans? Yeah, we'd love to hear what you would like, in addition to us
1: coming to your house for recording to one live, because obviously that's what you want us Ooh, to do. But Live story, open that would be fun. Yeah, that would be fun. Uh, yeah, think about what we should do for our big 200th episode. Matt! Yes? I swear I didn't plan this, but it's like all but certain that there are aliens now. What? I don't know if you've been following... Uh, All of the news, but the Pentagon declassified some documents and uh, shut down a program where they used to be. Apparently, they were looking for like spy stuff from other countries, but they kept finding unidentified flying objects, um, Uh. not necessarily extraterrestrial, but definitely UFOs
0: and cigar shaped.
1: uh, No, some of them. Right. But uh, the man who ran the program, his name is Luis uh, Elizondo. And uh, he admitted that he now this is the guy he 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 was the head of the Pentagon's program, the Pentagon. Yes. And he said, based on his time there, based on his time running the program, uh, he is certain uh, he he said we may not be alone.
0: He is certain that we may not be alone.
1: Yeah, I overstepped because I'm so excited. (laughs) He said we may not be alone. He said, I can't speak on behalf of the government. Obviously, I'm not in the U.S. government anymore. My personal belief is that there is very compelling evidence that we may not be alone, whatever that means.
0: Um, well, I think since they discontinued that program, it probably argues for the fact that we are not alone and they've made contact. So why would they continue the program?
1: I think there's, that's the only reasonable conclusion. One I mean,
0: after. I can't think of another one
1: at all. No, not at all. So uh, how do you feel about this?
0: I think that probably uh, one of the hard things about aliens will be crossing cultures and understanding each other well. Uh, we, don't, we don't do that well as, as human beings, so doing it across uh, potentially across species could be very difficult.
1: Well, uh, then we're in luck because our guests today, I think, will be able to help us uh, discern uh, a little bit more about that. Uh, We are fortunate today to have author Sarah Shin with us. Uh, She is the Associate National Director of Evangelism uh, for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So the uh, the, sort of the main uh, mothership organization that (laughs) InterVarsity Press is a part of. Um, And we got connected to Sarah through InterVarsity Press. uh, uh, And I I, I love this book. Her book is called Beyond Colorblind. And uh, I thought the interview was just an incredible amount of fun. Yeah. What, what
0: do uh, you think? She's great. She's great. You guys will love it.
1: Uh, well, uh, it is. We, we talked to her for quite a while, if that tells you anything about how much we enjoyed it. So I guess we should probably just hop over to the interview.
0: Let's do it. Today's episode of The Storyman is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download, and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash Storyman. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Our guest today
1: is author Sarah Shin. Uh, uh, Sarah, welcome to The Storyman. We're so honored to have you on the show.
2: I'm delighted to be here, so thank you for having me.
1: Uh, so one of the things we always ask our Storyman guests to do, especially the first time they're on the show, is display their geek credentials. So is there is there anything in the world that you are a geek about? I was like contemplating
2: this question wondering hmm i might like is it possible i might out geek people i'm not sure so Uh (laughs) Um, (laughs) if you asked you know mirror mirror on the wall who's the geekiest marvel fan of them all my husband would win in this i do love marvel movies um much prefer them to actually DC movies as ever. Wonder Woman (laughs) is wonderful. But, uh, when Thor Ragnarok came out, um, my husband and I were going to watch it with our small group, like for his birthday, but he was having a bad week. So we watched it two nights in a row. opening I loved it. Loved it so much. You know, like I, and, um, it was, it was just hilarious. Uh, I, I just watched like star Wars, um, I definitely watch Marvel movies, like, in the theater multiple times, <laughs> opening month or opening week, because I just really love it.
0: Um, so have you, like, loved all of the Marvel movies? Uh, or is there one that's, like, your absolute favorite?
2: Oh, I do like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy was hilarious. Um, and there were things that were just, like, funny about them. But they're all kind of special in their own way. Um, uh uh-huh yeah so i feel like it depends right it, it always changes it gets more complex um i'm really looking forward to black panther and then oh, yes. yeah like that looks really awesome and then i think uh is it uh infinity
1: war yeah, uh, infinity yeah. War, yeah.
2: my husband was like showing me trailers i'm like i've seen that one yes you're sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah and I, I think the other thing that puts me probably pride- geek status is um i went to one of the geekiest schools of them all mit you know like i mean
1: whoa you know so yeah in
2: terms of geek factor that that's there i mean i was definitely average to like below average performing so like the true geeks were probably the most brainy brilliant ones of the school um but you know when i was i studied like astrophysics data in high school looked at like random quasars or black holes or whatever so Okay. So probably really geeky.
1: I have to ask then what are you making of this interstellar object? That's making its way through our solar system that may or may not be alien technology.
2: You know, I don't know. I mean, it's a very strange shape to have survived, um, that shape for this long, but I'm like, who who knows? Right. Um, I have, I, I don't have opinions. I think it's fascinating. Um, I think when they I think someone was saying if it actually moves out of its natural trajectory and starts doing weird travel patterns, that's when you're like, Okay, something else is going on. It's not just a an asteroid. So I'm just waiting to see what happens.
0: What well, what is As, what is the advantage of these cigar shaped spaceships? I I'm unclear. You know, why being a cigar is good. I don't, They just I don't like know, actually.
1: I'm not because <laughs> They have enough they have enough space in them to contain like machinery for propulsion and things like that. But the shape of them is thin enough that it, it significantly reduces the risk of being struck by interstellar dust. Oh. By the
2: interstellar and there you have the greater geek in subject. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the subject. Be- I'm a true believer. <laughs> I'm a
1: true believer. True believer. I believe I want to believe. Oh, man. Sorry, we did not intend to get off on that tangent, but I can't help you said you, you were an astrophysicist, so I had to take No,
2: I, I looked at satellite data when I was
1: in it, high school. I
2: was just trying to give you fun, random, completely
1: random. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, that's great. Uh, so, uh, going in a completely different direction.
0: <laughs> Speaking of. Uh,
1: so, we're, yeah, we're going to be talking today about the idea of uh, saying that we're colorblind and why that is... Uh, problematic and insufficient. So, uh, Sarah, you, 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 your whole book presupposes that our quest to be colorblind uh, is, if if not wrong, at, at least uh, it doesn't go nearly far enough. So, uh, as a white person myself who has grown up in white evangelicalism, mm-hmm. colorblindness was often held up by anyone who even thought about talking about race, which yeah. didn't happen very often in the church that I was raised in, mm-hmm. or in uh, at least the first church that I worked in the people who even did think about talking about race colorblindness was elevated as like, that was the thing that we aspired to be. And, and we, we sort of like boasted that we didn't see color. Yeah. Uh, so what, why isn't that, and en- why isn't that good enough?
2: Yeah. Um, that's a great question. It's a, it's a commonly asked question. And so I think when people, um, prize colorblindness, what they're often trying to say with good intention is, um, Hey, uh, Back in the day, especially during segregation or slavery, all this stuff, uh, people thought that color was a reason to think of someone as less than, right? Color lines, uh, segregated toilets, water fountains, all that stuff. So in an attempt to get a get rid of those lines, people were like, let's be blind, right? Let's not have, let's not treat people differently, unequally, because of that they're not white or, you know, they're in different races. Um, but there's a difference between um, treating people equally and treating people the same. So I think what colorblindness attempts Mm. to do is say, hey, I'm gonna treat someone with um, equal dignity. But the reality about about our experiences, culturally and racially, especially in the US, is there's so much history that's been built up and the way that affects people's educational opportunities, um, their job opportunities, their experiences at the workplace, especially for black and brown Americans and people of color. that actually, then, if you say colorblind, that actually delegitimizes and invalidates someone's, um, like, just their ability and their safety in being able to share about things that are hard. And so, when you're a friend to someone, right, you get to know them. You know, I, I can say I'm from Jersey. I live in Boston. You know, like, um, uh, you know, I can say like I'm the granddaughter of a Korean military general. Like, there's all these things as you get to know me, you you get to understand who I am. But then, if you can't actually explain those things, you—it's almost like, hey, all these other things about this person, I'm going to say it's important, but the the race or ethnicity stuff, let's like pretend like it doesn't exist, which actually not only invalidates the, the 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 painful things that actually we need to talk about and support each other in, but actually also invalidates like. The beauty that god's put in our stories so it's kind of a double whammy right it says like uh i'm colorblind so i'm going to almost like pretend like your culture is not there and pretend like we're all the same when actually we eat different foods we have different values you know um we we have different understandings what does it mean to honor our elders right or what does it mean to show hospitality and then also it's like if if a racial incident happens right and i'm hurt or friends hurt that someone that says, Oh, well, like the answers to be colorblind, they're not a safe person to share uh, your your deepest like hurts and fears and prayer
1: needs with. Um, I've often So like right out of, right out of the box, like if, if someone says I'm colorblind, that's like an immediate red flag. I think it's to, to me
2: it says good intentions. To someone that's exhausted in a conversation, that that might be a red flag, you know, because I for me if I have trust the person, I'm like, hey, I know you mean well, but I think actually you might inadvertently be saying something else than what you mean. So, uh, yeah, but I know a lot of people are like, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. How can I share about things that are important to me with someone that says um, that my ethnic or racial background doesn't exist? So I think in this time and age, it is a red flag for a lot of people because we live in a divided country. There's so much distrust and tension, and people are trying to figure out, are you safe? Is this person safe? And if that's the first thing coming out of your mouth, and you're a Christian trying to reach out to non-Christians especially, yeah. then um, it can actually cause a lot of distrust.
0: Sarah, one of the, one of the things you talk about is how in uh, multi-ethnic communities can be really challenging. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of our listeners actually interact in some sort of multi-ethnic community, and you say part of this is because we have different levels of ability and you've kind of been suggesting that already, like that yeah. there could be different levels of relationship or understanding, uh, within the communities we run in, uh, but, but that we can have different levels of ability or awareness when it comes to talking about race and culture. Like, can you mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. So, you know, if you canvass your average kind of black African-American, um, a lot of times, when they're growing up, they're going to hear a lot about both what's Black culture as well as what are Black racial experiences. Um, as we're hearing more about kind of um, altercations uh, with police, where there's uh, unarmed um, uh, yeah, death of a Black man or woman or child hands um, of law enforcement, you know, there's like kind of like there's this greater awareness of like, oh, a lot of times parents, Black parents, have these conversations with their children when they're very young about. Um, racial profiling or how to act with police that are really different than what white or Asian parents um, talk about. And, and so there's things about what does it mean that Black culture is beautiful? So often in oftentimes uh, counteracting a lot of the negative things that have been portrayed or, or said on the playground or by a racist neighbor. So actually for a lot of Black folks, they grow up hearing a lot of these things, family dinner conversation, right? Uh, language and understanding. Um, so in terms of cultural and racial awareness, they're high in both. For someone that's Asian or Latino, based uh, depending on how long their family has been in the country, depending on their language ability, their closeness to like a community that talks about this stuff, they might have a very high cultural awareness, but might they might not necessarily have as much like language for racial things. Um, because that's not talked about at the family table as much, although it d- depends which community. And then for white Americans, oftentimes like uh, they often don't realize that race is a thing. Although right right now that's different, right? Um, it's not talked about at the family table, and then culture is often not really addressed unless you're like a second, third generation, like like Italian or or maybe Irish American. And so you're basically having people that are, like, marathon swimmers with people that are just stepping into the kiddie pool. They have very different frames of reference and muscles, and they're supposed to swim together, right? And it's just utter chaos. Like I have a coworker, um, Julie, who when she was little, she was learning about, like, The king, King, slavery, all this stuff. And so she was like sitting in the back seat. She's like five years old. She remembers asking her parents like, hey, why did slavery happen or all this stuff? And all she was met with was silence. And so she's white, right? And she basically, the message she got in that was, this is an uncomfortable topic. We're not going to talk about it. The best thing to do is not talk about it. So at five years old, the curiosity, a a good question by a curious five-year-old is completely squelched. And she never gets to talk about it again until college. So think about that gap, you know, of that time. And I, I think it's because of that that, and then we have different experiences, norms, and things. It makes it really hard then to come together and talk about things. Um, and often our leaders aren't trained uh, on how to navigate these conversations, especially our church leaders. So it makes it really confusing.
1: Uh, I can say, as a church leader, that that is one hundred percent true. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, we never, we never had any classes in, uh, my ministerial training that even considered, uh, ethnic contexts or, uh, even like how to, how to pastor in a racially diverse country, you know, like nothing at all.
2: Yeah. I, I teach a, once a, once a term, uh one night, uh, class about cross-cultural skills and, Awareness uh, at Gordon Conwell's Boston campus. And that's an extremely diverse campus. You have people from all over the world pastoring multi ethnic immigrant congregations and, like, actually trying to teach a class of that group of people. I mean, you can have like people that are leading dominantly first, second generation Brazilian congregations, <laughs> people that are leading black congregations, people that are trying to do multi-ethnic churches. And it's it's a trip trying to lead the wow. class, but it's also so rich because you get to see how diverse it is and how it's not just a one-note sort of solution. or step. And everyone really learns from each other as you're hearing like, oh, your experience is so different from mine. Your congregation's needs and presuppositions are really different. So that's actually something I really enjoy each term.
1: We, uh, we had one cross-cultural communication class in my private Christian undergraduate university, and it was for missions majors. Wow.
2: All right. That's got to (laughs) change. Yeah.
1: Well, it may have changed by now. I'm, I've been out of college a while, but, (laughs) but, you know, I mean, yeah, honestly, like, um, I was a theology major, not a ministry major, Mm -hmm. but even still, like it never would have occurred to me to, to need a class in cross-cultural communication or cross-cultural leadership because all of the church contexts I'd ever been in Mm -hmm. were monocultural, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so... Uh, Storymen listeners know one of the things we like to do is kind of take a deep dive into one chapter of the book, so you you get a taste of mm-hmm. uh, of exactly how rich the book is because uh, we are obviously not going to have time to go through the whole thing. So uh, I thought in light of this conversation it would be really interesting to, to talk about chapter six, mm-hmm. which is called "Trust Building with Ethnic Strangers." Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting, a, a couple of episodes ago, we interviewed Dr. Sandra Glan about John Four, mm-hmm. and uh, we talked with her about that text through the lens of feminism. Yep. Uh, you use that text as a story of a cross-cultural interaction. So why, uh, why when you sat down to frame out this chapter, did you choose John Four uh, to, to have that conversation?
2: Yeah, you know, John Four is like such a... Wonderful and unique passage because it's like, is it about evangelism? Is it about discipleship? Is it about women and feminism? Is it about ethnicity? Yes, you
0: know? yeah, right. Um,
2: but I do think, uh, what's really helpful for me, and as I'm training others and understanding why John 4 has so much kind of ethnic history and cross cultural interaction significance, is we need to understand Jesus's context. You know, we're taught a lot about samaritan and jewish sort of enmity and strife but how deep and severe that is um often we're not always told that we might be like oh it's like the other side of the tracks but in reality like um there's been strife between jews and samaritans for about 600 plus years uh josephus jesus's contemporary writes about some samaritans throwing some of the bones of the dead over the jewish temple walls which we all know is like a big no-no and so the outcry is so great that the only, way to quell, the only way to quell the Jewish mob's rage is for the Roman army to kill their presiding officer. Right? So it, there's like so much anger and enmity. And you know, they, would, they would rather uh, go like, avoid the entirety of that middle section of the country just to never interact. Right? And then instead Jesus goes straight into the middle Samaritan country in this well called this town called Sikhar. and that's like that's so fascinating. And then all the conversations, like the Samaritan woman, just keeps bringing up, "You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan," you know. She brings up the things that divides them, like our father, Joseph or Jacob or Joseph, you know. So she's bringing up stuff where she's like, "This is what divides us. This is what divides us." And Jesus keeps interacting with her, and he doesn't he doesn't avoid the question, you know. He actually starts engaging in questions about, you know. Um, like her questions about where to worship and all this stuff, that actually those are the fundamental questions that often divide Jews and Samaritans. And in that, what's so fascinating is that he builds trust, right? Yes, he extends to her honor and dignity and kindness that even Samaritan men had not extended to her. But as a Jewish man, extending to her that kind of uh, honoring witness, something changes in her, and she gets to experience the Messiah it, which who she has been anticipating as a Samaritan woman. So I think there's so much about when you can build trust with someone that's supposed to be an ethnic stranger or someone you don't interact with in a way that's powerful, you actually get a really wonderful opportunity to share the gospel and to build trust towards sharing the gospel, and that's what you see happen. What you do also see is that the disciples, they're like, what's happening? Why are we here? Why are you talking to her? Like, and you know, they don't get they don't rejoice in it. They're just uncomfortable the whole time. Um, and so I think it's a really great look at like what does Jesus actually value? Who he didn't he didn't need to go to Samaria. He didn't need to interact with this woman, but he chooses to. And she ends up being a great evangelist. And part of the hope of the book is that it helps us as Christians figure out who are we not reaching that we could be reaching because we don't know how to extend hospitality towards them. Um, And for me, as someone that works in the evangelism department um, of university, my employer, you know, like, I'm like, I'm really wanting to see the church or the capital C not define um, our evangelism and mission by what we look like, right. That, that our skin and our, Ethnic or racial background is not the boundary of uh, how we live out Christ's teachings as a church. That we actually are able to cross them. I think we see Jesus doing that uh, long before the cross, you know, and you see the mm-hmm. disciples doing that long after resurrection and Pentecost.
0: Sarah, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, so you, obviously building trust is really important, and you say it's an essential first step in these cross cultural relationships. I, I, I think I've experienced and I know other people I've talked to have experienced where they're with someone of another ethnicity or culture mm-hmm. and there's a presumption of uh, untrustworthiness one way or the other where you're like, hey, man, I never did anything to you. I'm like a nice person. I'm trying to have a positive interaction yeah. relationship and mm-hmm. you're presuming that I'm not. Yeah. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? Like why is building trust that essential first step and and what do we do in those where mm-hmm. a situation where I might walk away going like, gosh, I kind of hurt my feelings or made me angry yeah. or something like that yeah. situation.
2: You know, I think a good parallel is like, you know, with the rise of like the awareness of sexual harassment and abuse of women, right. We're starting to see there's, there's a larger story that women go through and there's been a greater call for men especially men that want to be allies, to recognize those stories, to see the pattern, and to speak up, right? Yeah. Um, and and I think there's, there's something um, similar in that where it's like, hey, for some women that have gone through that kind of pain, when they see a man, they don't automatically just see a man. Right. Even if that man might be like as close to Christ in character and intentions, you know, and um, spiritual life. But like all this, all they might see is a man. Um, now you can say that, well, that woman, she should not be um, thinking like, oh, that person's unsafe. She should give him the benefit of the doubt. But right. the reality is, if you have been harassed, maybe raped or abused, like that's that's actually that's like as a Christian to put all of that onus on someone that has been um abused and mistreated, I don't think that's actually very Christ-like. You know, when, when we're interacting with people, we actually meet them where they are in their place of hurt. And we figure how do we extend Christ's gentleness, his compassion. And I think we live in a world where, you know, like um, when you're a certain ethnic background or race, you don't know when you're interacting with a new person, whether you represent a friend, you know, whether you represent like a stranger that never intersected with that with that person, or maybe someone that, Represents a group of people that might have bullied someone, right? They might have mistreated their parents. Like you don't, you don't know. So um, in some ways, saying "Well, like uh, I'm individually a nice person," you know, I'm individually have good intentions. Like um, that actually becomes about like self-defense and self-protection, and it's actually not oriented towards like actually we're always called to be ambassadors of the gospel and to extend peace in places where there is no peace. And so when you're interacting someone that's a stranger, you don't know what uh, history existed beforehand where there was broken relationships, um, broken trust. So I think actually extending trust and and trying to build trust uh, is really important and a first step as we think about being ambassadors of the gospel in a very diverse world with a lot of pain. Uh, And we're like, oh, well, like. Does, does, that feels hard. Does it have to be that way? I'm like, well, following Jesus is hard, you know. Like obeying, yeah. you know, obeying was, someone as like the risen Lord, and you know, like the whatever the person that dictates authority in your life, you know, and you know, you die and surrender to it, and you know, whatever you rise in your new self, that's hard, you know. That this is a small how dare thing.
0: you? I thought I was gonna like be really well off if I just did what <laughs> Jesus said,
2: you know. Like and like, so you know, it's just it, that's that's hard stuff. Um, but the thing is, I think as Christians, we are called to die to our old selves and our old um, protectionism and to actually love the other as Christ loved us. And often Jesus loves the other at cost um, to himself. And especially for those of us that might not have as many scars, right? Or are newer to the situation or the conversation, um, I think it's. It's time to then ask you, how can I steward what I have and how can I steward my own person um, to extend shalom? Uh,
1: So one of the first steps you suggest to folks uh, who are trying to uh, learn better how to uh, have cross-cultural relationships, multi-ethnic communities, is actually entering into an ethnically different community with a learning posture. So Mm -hmm. that's relatively easy on a lot of say like college campuses where you have different like black student unions or Asian student unions or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, What about for folks that maybe aren't in college anymore or never went to college? Like what are some, what are some ways to do that? That are, that are respectful. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. um, I think uh, this, this question would have, the answer would have been different like 30 years ago, um, like pre-internet or whatnot. But I think it's helpful to even be like, look up um, some churches and congregations and ask, um, what are places where the congregation might not be majority white? It might be a black church, right? It might be a Latino church or, uh, I don't know, a a Chinese church or different things. And ask like, oh, what if I were to visit Um, and just, you know, quietly attend and just observe, at you know, and try to figure out, like, what are ways to be respectful and whatnot. You can probably, like, actually look up some things online. There's a lot of stuff you can learn about. Um, and so there, there can be actually some of these immersion experiences that aren't college-specific. There can be, um, even when, when once traveling, maybe there you can go to a certain part of a city and just, like, walk around and learn. Maybe there's a friend of a different ethnic background that's willing to um, bring you to a party, right, or um, help you explore... Uh, a restaurant or neighborhood and just kind of adopt a learning posture. So I think there's different spaces where communities gather t- outside of college. Uh, there might be uh, community events or um, it, it depends. Right? If you live in a city, there's definitely different spaces where people gather, uh, community centers, youth centers. If you're in more rural, uh, more uh, sparsely populated suburban areas, it would probably be a little bit more of a stretch. But I think even things like looking for like a immersion experience where one steps out of one's comfort zone and even for like a week, right. Or maybe a couple of weeks goes, might, might be going overseas, but like maybe goes to a different part of the country and decides to help out with like some city stuff there, or maybe serving a specific co- community that can still be really helpful. Um, and it, it will cost us time. It might cost us money, um, but I do think it's not something that will happen like easily or naturally. But with intentionality, it can be a really rich way to learn more. Um, but it, we have to take that step to find. Uh, place. Yeah.
1: So uh, this is a, a follow up question I've been really wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so there's a there was a list of books that circulated after charlottesville mm-hmm. uh that was 17 books on race every white person needs to read uh-huh. and so i threw i threw out on facebook i was like hey does anyone want to get together and read these books with me and we we've, we've got a group of like about uh 10 of us mm-hmm. that meet once a month now and are reading through these books mm-hmm. um uh all most of us are white not all of us mm-hmm. uh and w- one of the guys who's a pastor at another church in town said that he was telling one uh, uh a, a black staff person at his church that they were doing this and the guy laughed and was like you know, that's like a very like white suburban solution to learning about racism is like, oh, I'll get a book about it. Uh he was like, Why don't you come with me to the black barber shop and you know you can learn about race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh the thing that I thought was interesting about that was like how different it is for him to be as a white man invited into that space and like accompanied into that space. Mm -hmm. Uh, because, because like the barbershop has been historically like sort of a a safe space for Mm -hmm. Mm African-Americans. Um, whereas it would be, it would feel like real touristy. Mm -hmm. I think if Mm -hmm. like we just decided we were going to go to a black barbershop one day (laughs) to have like an ethnic experience. Um, So I guess, I guess my question is sort of like specifically for maybe for white people who occupy a position of cultural power and privilege, Mm -hmm. uh, is it any different like approaching these spaces or are there any things that, that are maybe things to watch out for? Does that make sense? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think the thing about your friend's story that's key is your friend was invited by a black friend into, into a black space. And so the invitation was given. And I think that's really key because then you're not just showing up as a stranger, right? Someone else has brought you. Someone else is almost going to walk with you or debrief with you and is willing to have you come. Um, I think especially for uh, white Christians and places of leadership or power, um, I remember hearing many years ago, uh, Dr. Soong Chan-ra, he challenged, especially white congregants, everyone in in the congregation to uh, find mentors that don't look like them. Um, it's especially for people that have been in spaces where almost all their spiritual kind of academic mentors of some sort have been white um, I think actually saying Lord I'm going to pray and ask that you give me friends and uh, mentors and people that uh, I can connect with that can help me navigate and almost be a guide through that space I think often we don't pray that right? we just try to do it on our own but I think God's like yes Yes, I want to give that to you. Let, let me orchestrate that. So I would actually say like pray towards that. also for people that are pastors, if you are if you are a pastor, even if you're white, you know, and you step into a black church and, and become know that you're a pastor, people are going to treat you differently. So, I, you know, in terms of they're going to try to respect you, you know, um, e- even amidst a, a lot of the stuff that's happening in the country. So I would even say, like, you know, reaching out intentionally, like a white pastor to a past, a black pastor of a, of a black church or of a, of an Asian pastor at an Asian church or different things like that, of figuring out how what are some key connections that can be made, and a lot of times um, it might just be putting oneself in that posture of humility and saying, "Hey, um, I would love as, as someone that's a spiritual leader, in my congregation to uh, to learn right from from peers, from mentors. Uh, would you be willing to meet up with me like once a month um, and uh, just to break bread together, right? Um, to get to know it, to pray for each other as we lead. I think some of those micro relationships are actually really important." as we think about how do we help congregations and Christian communities actually start to turn because then you start to have these beautiful, authentic stories of learning and transformation that you can actually start to share. It's no, It connects the head uh, to the heart. And I would like to say, um, Especially for white folk, like the cerebral acquisition of knowledge is actually very helpful and important. Like I, I get that you know your fr- uh, the friend was saying, "Oh, that's a white way of doing things was a black way." Um, but I think a lot of times for for white folk, like actually, I mean, like understanding the statistics, understanding some of the cerebral stuff is important. what's But what's also important is not settling there and then connecting the head knowledge to relationships, to heart knowledge, and actually sticking mm-hmm. it through. So i have often training like, colleagues and students and saying like, hey, read this thing, read a book, read this article, right? and then talk to people, like start to connect your head to your heart. It's not bad to gain head knowledge, but if it's only head knowledge, we're not being the holistic beings that God created us to be. Um, so that's what I was, I don't that's know if what- I fully answered your question. But-
0: That's great. I think that's really common, actually, in majority culture is this idea or U.S. majority culture, this idea that uh, knowledge is experience Mm -hmm. that uh, and and to never move. It's kind of a blind spot to think like, well, I've I've read everything there is to know about parachuting. (laughs) <laughs> are skydiving and so people yes. are like have you ever been skydiving like well basically yes. I mean, i've never jumped out of a plane or anything but i mean
2: yes no that's I a great much analogy that's a great analogy and you know um i think because as a western society we are the product of the enlightenment right and often what uh head knowledge is equated to actual experience or real knowledge but um the the hebrews israelis were not they didn't separate head like mind, body, and spirit, right? They're earthy, holistic people, um, and you know, to know God did not mean to cerebrally know God. To know God meant to trust, obey God, right? To to know Him so much that it leads to actual action. And I think a lot of times our challenge when we're uh, teaching and you know discipling people in America it doesn't matter actually what your ethnic background is because the American kind of Western framework is there is like how do we go from you learn something in your brain to you're doing something with your heart, hands, and feet. And and that actually is more and more I'm like, are we willing to pay the cost of discipleship? You know, because you can you can sit in a corner and read something all day. It doesn't cost you anything other than maybe a little bit of time. But real relationship and crossing boundaries and trust build, it takes, it costs us humility it costs us making mistakes it costs us being willing to learn from and receive correction Um, but that's actually that's where the the transformation and the fruit happens and a lot of us don't even enter in because we're too afraid we're afraid we're gonna do something wrong we're afraid we're gonna get corrected but actually the goal was never to like kind of self-isolate and you know avoid (laughs) that it's actually like part of discipleship is being trained and, um, you know, like sanctified by Jesus and that you're making mistakes and you're learning and you're growing. And we need to figure out how do we, how do we do that? Uh, what does it mean for people to find, um, the right mentors and spiritual guides, right? Of, of, um, I know for me as an Asian American woman, I've learned a lot from a number of black mentors that have been willing to walk with me and have extended hospitality, um, to me. And that's been a gift. Not everyone has capacity to do that to someone that's outside their ethnic community, but those that are, like, the, we should we should be following those people. You know, we should be saying, please, uh, if you have space and time and capacity, please, uh, teach me. And if we're able to learn from each other, then we can pass on that learning.
1: Uh, we are almost out of time, but I wondered if you would. So, uh, one of my favorite, and by favorite, I mean, I mean, part where I cringed the most. <laughs> Part of this chapter was where you were talking about how to extend hospitality to uh, persons who are not the same ethnicity as you who come into your community. So like we're predominantly my church is, is uh, I would say, more ethnically diverse than a lot of churches uh, where I am. Yeah. But uh, we're predominantly white. We're certainly culturally white. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I was thinking about that. And you have this, like, whole amazing list of, like, things not to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I wonder if you could just, like, briefly uh, kind of run through a couple of, like, guidelines for how to to extend hospitality when you're in the ethnic uh, majority.
2: Yeah, so I think um, this might feel very simple, but it's, like, don't make assumptions. Might, um, don't ask questions that assume. So, you know, I, I'm Korean, Korean American. Uh, I grew up hearing, like, are you Chinese, Japanese, uh, Thai? Like, how, I, mean, I mean, the whole list. <laughs> where are you from? from? You know, exactly. And then also, where are you from, right? Which was telling me, like, oh, you're based, even though someone was trying to ask me, what's your ethnic heritage? But what I heard in that was, I don't perceive you as from here, from America. You're an other. So that especially when that's the first...
1: I mean, <laughs> New Jersey is... Yeah. bit uh, yeah. yeah. of America.
2: You? You know, like, <laughs> that's a whole... Um, don't hate. You know, I love my Jersey. <laughs> so, you know, but but I think the thing is sometimes we're trying to ask what's your ethnic background, but we ask something like, uh, are you this this list of things and the person says no and basically like, hey, you don't know what Korean is or, or you ask like, where are you really from and basically you say, you're not from this country. Automatically... Basically, probably this get to know you question that you thought was harmless, completely just says like, uh, this might not be the safest space for me you know, to to come in. Like, if this is the baseline question, I, what I usually um, encourage instead is asking like, what's your ethnic background or what's your ethnic heritage. Probably don't want to start off just with that question. You want to ask like, oh, you, know, you know, like where's home for you? That like, they can say New Jersey, right? Or maybe maybe it's Canada. I don't know. You know. Um, but then, starting with start having that be one of the questions that you follow up with after you you know ask about you know what's it like to live here or you just moved here why and that sort of stuff. Um, I think also asking good questions that are like learning posture versus making people feel like they're on the defensive. So the example might be, uh, you know, let's say someone brings to your church potluck a food that represents their ethnic culture let's say an Indian friend brings like the most super spiced super garlic uh, like amazing delicious food now not everyone is used to that right so someone that uh, is more used to like meat and potatoes salt and pepper they might be like wow like why is it like that you know and ew you know there there might be all sorts of things so for that person their you know their experience of home-cooked food that's what's normal right and so there's a difference between, this is what growing up for me was, and that's normal versus like, my normal should be everyone else's normal. So when someone that's like new to a community might bring something to the part that represents their culture to try to share, and someone says, what is that? Or why do you do that? Like, you know, so the why questions or the, Ill, you know, sort of statements, that automatically kind of says like, that's not welcome here. Even if that person didn't mean that, and they're kind of making a, a statement. So I think instead of being like, oh, this is, okay, like, just like trying it, right? Trying the stew, try, trying the beans or whatever. Um, and asking more like, oh, uh, learning questions. You know, like, tell me more about this. Or um, I'm totally new to learning about Indian culture. Like, tell me more about your family background. Get, making it open-ended so the person can feel free to share whatever they want to. And they might share more as more trust is built. But I would say avoid where you from. Avoid, you know. <laughs> are you fill in the blank? You know, animal, mineral, vegetable, you know. Um, and uh, so those are those would be some things to start off with, and trying to adopt a more open-ended learning posture way of asking questions versus
1: somehow asking like,
2: why aren't you like me?
1: Um. Yeah, it seems like we should also just like excise the word normal from our vocabulary.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean. I, I guess saying that someone that there is a, a normal out there is actually a lot of times harmful, right? I mean, talk about body image, like there's like, oh, for women, for teenage girls, right? They So many of them think they're not normal and they're beautiful, right? They might not be size zero, like whatever, but they're not supposed to be like, that's abnormal. But that's what's on social media. That's what's in the magazines. And they do terrible things to their bodies, to their minds, you know? because someone said that's normal um and yeah so I think actually being like this might be normative for you but it's not normative for another person it's probably would be really helpful and I I think there's a lot of assumptions of what's normal in often in churches not just white churches you know like you know I grew up in a lot of Korean churches like what does it mean to be a normal quote-unquote Korean I mean there's a lot of pressure to uh to conform to what was considered normal and often at great psychological, emotional cost. And um, when you bring that into a multi-ethnic setting, that's compounded. So I think part of being a more diverse, reconciling, multi-ethnic church actually means giving up what you think is normal.
1: All right, well, we are about out of time. I cannot overemphasize how barely we have even (laughs) stretched the surface of this book. Um, There is just – it is a – it is a treasure trove of riches. If, if you were like even slightly interested in this conversation, which I assume if you're still listening, you were, uh, then uh, yeah, you just, you really owe it to yourself to get a copy of Beyond Colorblind. Uh, Sarah, thank you for this book. It, it's so important, I think, especially for our, our country and our culture and our churches right now.
2: Well, thank you. I'm really, I was really glad to be here. You guys are great.
1: Uh, before you go, a couple of things. One, uh, we wondered if you would participate in our time honored Storyman tradition of our pop culture pick of the week.
0: So tell me more about.
1: yes so we just choose a thing a book a movie a tv show a podcast a hobby like anything that we've been into it can be something new something old our third co-host clay who was uh traveling for the holidays and so is not able to be here, is a big classic movie guy so half the time he's naming stuff that we've never even heard of before that came out like in the 40s so it can literally just be anything that you're into that you would recommend uh if someone's got some extra time they might check out
2: um, I mean, I just saw the last Jedi. It's pretty good, but I'm very curious to know, you know if someone someone likes the force awakens better than the last Jedi or vice versa. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the movie, so not to give away any spoilers. <laughs> but uh... Uh, <laughs> no
1: spoilers. I saw it, and I loved yeah. it. Matt saw it, and he uh, felt like it crushed his dreams. Oh, I know. No, so I never heard... said it
0: crushed my dreams. I just said it's the worst.
2: I <laughs> 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 so makes of a classic Star Wars fan. I was like, yeah. A friend posted, he was like, you know, he's like, I did not enjoy The Last Jedi as much. But I realized there's a new generation of Star Wars fans, and for them, this is their this is their like Star Wars, whatever. It's like for that's me, right. mine is the old school, and that that's going to live forever. It's like, but I will allow the new generation to have their their generation of Star Wars. I'm like, oh, that's yeah. very emotionally generous
0: of you. I just feel like the next generation already has their Star Wars. It's called Harry Potter. So hands <laughs> off my Star Wars. <laughs>
1: that's uh, such a grumpy old yeah. man, man
0: i know we actually did an extra on this with full of spoilers which there'll be none on this <laughs> but one of the, our friend eli was on the show with us and i was saying something he's like how old are you <laughs> 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 i mean yes i'm cranky you. okay leave me alone
2: now the thing <laughs> i did really like as a woman was the last data is like Full of like, kind of strong women, women power, sort of, you know. Yeah, so,
0: totally.
2: Yeah, and I, that feels timely, right, in this current sort of day and age. But yeah, I, I could totally see how I'm like, ooh, they made a lot of gutsy moves, and if you're if you're a diehard Star Wars fan from from the beginning, you know, um, that's it's gonna it might be a hard movie to like based on some of the decisions they made, but I still enjoyed
1: it. Uh, well, my pick this week is. Uh... Jean-Claude Van Johnson, which is a TV show that is streaming on Amazon Prime right now. And the premise of it is that Jean-Claude Van Damme has always been an undercover agent for the U.S. government and that the reason he's in all of these terrible movies is that they were always fronts for his secret uh, spy operations. Wow. And so the, the show is six episodes, 30-minute uh, episodes, and he comes out of retirement to uh, go on another mission. So he's shooting a movie that is a gritty update of Tom Sawyer, and uh, Tom is now a woman, and he plays Huck Finn, <laughs> Tom's love interest. And uh, in the meantime, he's, of course, trying to uh, stop a supervillain from taking over the world. It is hysterical. Like, if you loved 80s action movies, it's spoofing them. I saw a comics writer that I follow on Twitter say that uh, it was everything she wanted the Expendables franchise to be. It's phenomenal. Like, I just, I can't quit watching it. It's so funny. Jean-Claude Van Damme is hilarious and, like, so self-aware, spoofing himself. It's fantastic. Just amazing.
0: It's awesome. Wow. (laughs) Um, mine is Jade City by Fonda Lee. J, uh, Fonda Lee is a science fiction and fantasy author. This is her first book for adults. She's mostly done young adult stuff. Uh, but basically imagine all of your favorite martial arts movies from China mm-hmm. and and your favorite Hong Kong gangster movies and your favorite American gangster movies and then shove them all together in a modern fantasy city. And that's basically what this book is. It's a it's a crime gangster thing with martial arts set in a second world fantasy, and it's spectacular. It's so fun. Uh, I read it over the course of two days, and I was I was really upset when anyone was interrupting me. It's just a <laughs> yeah, it's the first in the trilogy. Uh, really interesting kind of magic. Uh, it has some political thing. All, all the best stuff from your... From your kind of mafioso or uh, you know triad kind of movies are in there, as well as just some really fun martial arts. And and Fonda is a, a black belt, so the fight scenes are really off, well. They feel authentic, other than the fact that they can do amazing, incredible kind of movie martial arts stuff. So, can black belts not do that? Uh, not well. I, I mean, I maybe only in actual like life and death fights. I haven't seen anyone do it just like when they're just showing off that they know martial arts. I'm not sure.
1: They're probably not allowed to.
0: That could be. It's entirely <laughs> possible. But I—that I, nice. I, that is a culture I will need to uh, enter into more to understand.
1: <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, uh, we will put links to all those at NorvalRogers.com, uh, Facebook.com slash storymen. Sarah, uh, before we go, where can our listeners follow your work online?
2: Um, social media. My handle is Sarah Shin Author. Uh, at, that's both on Instagram and Facebook, uh, as well as Twitter. And you can also learn more about the book um, and get more resources on the website beyondcolorblind.com.
1: And I didn't tell you we were going to ask you this, so we can just cut it off if you don't have an answer. But Art, do you have another project in the works?
2: <laughs> no, I do not.
1: I, I, was, I was asked that by someone else. I was like,
2: well, what's wrong with you? I just finished the book. Do <laughs> 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 you know what it took to write that book? But but I was also like, oh, actually, I guess that that's a that that's a compliment. So um, I will talk to Jesus about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, uh, thank you again for being on the show with us. It has been uh, such a privilege to have you on. Thank you. All right, everyone. This has been the Storyman season eight finale. We will be back in the new year with uh, some more great content for you in the meantime please have a Merry Christmas Uh, please reach out to Sarah let her know that you enjoyed her on the show the book again is Beyond Colorblind and it is available from InterVarsity Press and everywhere books are sold until we're back next year take care of yourselves thank you for listening and have a very Merry Christmas